Um, are any of you doing stuff for fun? Have any of you ever done stuff for fun before? Yeah. Is, what's something that somebody has like, given up for fun in the past? Some of you may not want to share, that's okay. Fried food. Fried food. Fried food. Fried food. Well, you can't do that where I come from. That's not, that's not on the table. Donuts. Donuts. Uh, I'm doing my best to give up like personal social media for the next um, for the next 37 days. Which is tricky because I also manage like revolution social media, so that means like I'm there. Like, I can't just like uninstall these things from my phone. I have to like do work. Um, but that's my my goal. Fasting, as it turns out, which is what we're talking about, right, this practice of giving things up during the Lenten season. Fasting is an interesting gateway into our topic tonight, which is healing. But I want to warn you as we start that it's going to feel like I'm wandering pretty far from this topic before we circle back around to it. So I'm saying all this at the start so you can put a pin in that in your mind. Put a pin in this thought that fasting is a way to healing, that fasting is a way to so take that, put a pen in it, and then we're going we're gonna to get started. This week, what we're doing is we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark, which we introduced two weeks ago, and which we described that week as a gospel of trials. And then it's a gospel that begins with Jesus' temptation, Jesus' trial in the wilderness, and then it spends nearly half of its chapters on Jesus' arrest and the events that surround his trial and his eventual crucifixion. And then it's also a gospel that ends with an empty tomb that presses us as readers to, to pass a burden as well. Is Jesus the long-awaited Messiah of Israel? Is Jesus God's own son? Are we, as hearers of this gospel, willing to convict him of those, of those titles? And if we are, then what would that change? Two weeks ago, we looked at the first two-thirds of Mark chapter 1, and we saw how the author of this gospel starts by saying that Jesus is the Messiah and then bringing witnesses to support this accusation. Jesus is the Messiah in chapter 1 because John the Baptist says so. And then God himself says so. And then the disciples trust it so much to be true that they follow him. And then even the very demons that Jesus casts out from people that they are afflicting say so. But at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, we enter this kind of cross-examination phase in the gospel. Because there are also those who don't say that Jesus is the Messiah, who don't believe that. And we need to explore their reasoning, and their reasoning is this. Jesus isn't the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah because Jesus keeps doing things that a Messiah should not do. No matter what other people are saying, no matter what God says from heaven, it can't be him because he keeps doing stuff that a Messiah is not supposed to do. Interestingly, the first to question him are his closest followers, his disciples. There's this moment right at the end of where we left off last time where Peter's mother-in-law, Peter's one of Jesus' first disciples, and he tells Jesus that his mother-in-law has become sick. And so in Mark 1.31, we find this. Jesus went to her, and he took her hand, and he helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So then people brought to Jesus all the sick, and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus had healed many who had various diseases, and he also drove out many demons. Well, this is good. He's healing. That's good. But then, very early in the morning, when it was still dark, 
Jesus got up and he left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And Peter and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everybody is looking for you. And Jesus replies, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I am called. So what do we see right here in this moment? We see, on the one hand, we see the kinds of things that Jesus is doing, right? He heals and he teaches. Those are the, the like central things here at the early phases of his ministry. He heals and he teaches. But we also have this moment where the disciples find him and they show a kind of frustration, just like the earliest notes of frustration with how he's behaving, because what they want him to do is they want him to keep a good thing going, to keep the crowds growing. But Jesus instead miss, like, insists that they move on. I didn't write this in the script, but I'm going to tell you a story that I shouldn't tell you because it's going to waste our time. So I'm going to say just the shortest version of it, and I'll save it for another day. Whew. I found out two weeks ago that I happen to have, like, 60,000 YouTube followers. That's right. That's true. I found out I put a video on YouTube in 2009 and now has like 9 million views. It went viral like a year and a half ago. I have no idea. And everybody I tell about the story, they say the same kind of thing. They say, like, where's that money? Can you, like, why are you capitalizing? And then I told the pastor here at Heritage, Scott, about the story, and his first response, which is the most, like, Baptist pastor response imaginable, so he was like, well, you got all those followers, and anything you put up there, those people are going to get it right away on their YouTube feeds. And I could see, like, the evangelical wheel spinning, who's like, time to proclaim the gospel on your YouTube channel, and, like, trick all these people into, like, accidentally hearing it. My point is, there's a much longer story there, but I'll save it for another day. But my point is, is that in this moment, like what the disciples want is they feel like, dude, you have an audience. Like it's working. Whatever you did, you got everybody in town coming to hear you. Let's play into this. Let's build on this audience. And Jesus is immediately saying, like, I'm out. We're going to find him and go somewhere else. So what's Messiah supposed to do? He's supposed to gather a crowd. But what does Jesus do? Well, what Jesus does, he, he spreads the wealth. He moves on. And this is conflict number one. Then, in the next town, in verse 40, we pick up here. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was indignant. And he reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And so Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anybody, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And instead, the man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, this is a famously curious and odd passage, and there are answers to some of the questions you might have here about like, what's going on with the sending the people back to the priest or, and all that stuff. We're not going to dive all the way in tonight, but we are going to do a bit of contextualization. And I would say there are a few things to note. The first things to note here are the particular affliction that this man is suffering, and then the ways that that affliction is addressed in the Jewish ritual system. The affliction, of course, is leprosy, which is this ravaging, contagious skin disease. And due to stigma that surrounds leprosy in the ancient world, lepers are outcasts. 
like banished to colonies where they can only be with each other. And under the Levitical laws of Judaism, which are the laws that Jesus and his disciples are living under, lepers are also people who are ritually unclean. And this matters for two reasons in the stories, right? First, the man shouldn't be approaching Jesus at all. He shouldn't be where Jesus is. This is a major, a major affront in this cultural context. And it speaks, I think, to the man's desperation when he hears that this healing man is in town. And then second, Jesus, under no circumstances, should touch him. And what's curious is we've already seen, even in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus healing people without touching, without touching. And it's touching this man that is expressly forbidden because doing so is going to make him ritually unclean, going to make Jesus ritually unclean. And yet the man is there, and of all the ways that he could heal him, he chooses to touch him. And so this becomes conflict number two, right? Why would a man who has laid claim to something that's as important and as demanding of purity as the messianic title. Why would a man pursuing that title so flagrantly break the law? There, I'm like, thinking of some kind of illustration for this, and what I landed on, as, as awkward as this might be, is that it feels, this moment feels like an aspiring presidential candidate, like soliciting a sex worker just to have a conversation Like, even if you don't, like, do anything wrong, quote, unquote, why are you putting yourself in that position? What we're seeing here, then, is that what Jesus does is heal and he does that even if he has to break laws to do it. But what's expected of him, right? Well, as the Messiah, he's supposed to be the most pure, the most pure of everybody. But it's beginning to be clear, even here in, in this chapter, that Jesus is out to kind of reset people's expectations for who God is and how God is working, even if in doing that, in resetting those expectations, he is specifically complicating and throwing doubt on his own claim to be the Messiah. I know I'm moving super quickly here, but stay with me for a few stories more. So a few days later, Jesus is again teaching about the coming kingdom of God, and this group of men show up alongside their friend who's paralyzed, but they can't get into the house where Jesus is. And so they climb up on the building's roof, and then they make this opening, and then they lower the man down. And when Jesus sees them, he's impressed by their faith and their friendship. And he says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. So yet again, Jesus honors the desperation of people. 
and he heals. But this time he goes a step further, right? He attaches that healing to something even more important than their illness and something even more complicated. Jesus recognizes that the root problem behind everything that is making folks sick, that is contributing to their possession by demons, that is underlying, that is the underlying cause of their misery, and in fact, of our own misery, still is sin. And the Messiah, Jesus says, has come to solve that problem. Because the Messiah has come for the express purpose of making people well. The Pharisees are looking for healing. That's what all of this is revealing. What they're looking for is victory. So again, they protest this. And then finally, in the very next story, Jesus calls a despised tax collector to join his group of disciples. And then he dines with this man at the man's home. And while he does that, he sits alongside all these other castaways from Jewish community, including the aforementioned sex workers. And now the story reaches its tipping point, right? And so in 2, 15, and 16, we read this. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And we've been running through a lot of texts here this evening really quickly. There's been a point to this, and it's been to get us as quickly as possible right here to this moment. Because it's becoming crystal clear in these early days of Jesus' ministry that Jesus is not behaving like the Messiah is expected to behave. It is true, undeniable, that he is doing amazing things everywhere he goes. But time and time again, he is choosing an unclean path in order to do it. It's one of those things that we say without thinking all the time as Christians and in the church. We say that Jesus is the only person alive who, ever, who never sinned, right? We say this. He never sinned. He lived a perfect life and never sinned. But for just a moment, we need to actually pause and consider that the leaders of the religion that Jesus himself was a part of the leaders of the religion that Jesus himself is still central to did not see him that way. And in fact, this is exactly what seeds this tension between them. Jesus has laid claim to this title of the Messiah, who is this figure from Old Testament prophecy foreseen in the wake of Israel's great destruction and humiliation centuries ago by Babylon. And the Messiah is going to bring the Hebrew people back to fame and prosperity among the nations. He's going to be this warrior and this prophet who will liberate the people of the Hebrew nation from their long series of oppressors and see them placed back on top. He's, his healing, the healing that the Messiah brings, isn't meant to be local or rural or personal or otherwise small. The healing he's supposed to be bringing is meant to right the wrongs of an entire nation. His battles against evil aren't supposed to be for blind people or possessed people or leprous people. His battle against evil is supposed to be a battle against Rome. And to actually be this figure who fulfills scripture, 
The Messiah needs to be somebody who's perfectly aligned with Scripture. And so the puzzle of Jesus for the Pharisees is the puzzle of a man who has clear and inexplicable power, but who keeps wielding that power wrongly. And what explanation can they have for this? Except that he must be some kind of anti-Messiah. Some kind of force of a confusing and dualistic evil. And so this becomes what they believe. Jesus is an enemy to their vision of hope. And what is Jesus' answer to this challenge to his identity, this cross-examination of him? Well, immediately upon hearing their doubts, in Mark 2.17, he says this. He says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And who are the righteous? Well, that would be like the Pharisees, right? And, and the people who are devoutly religious, the rule followers. And to what would a Messiah be calling those rule followers? Well, he would be calling them to battle. He'd be calling them to battle for liberation. But who is Jesus calling? He's calling the sick. That's the people that he gets down in the mess with. That's the people who he allows himself to be sullied and tainted by. Another thing that we often say about God and the church, perhaps also without always thinking about it, is that God is so perfect that he can't allow sin in his presence. This is a core part of some of the doctrines that we teach. But when I read Mark 2, I have to ask, is that how Jesus behaves? Here's what I think all of this reveals, and I think it's where this cross-examination of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah really pushes on us, too. People who are devoutly religious are overwhelmingly tempted to get purity wrong. They're tempted to get health all wrong. And if you get those things wrong, and you can no longer see what healing means. When I was growing up in the church, somehow I became convinced that every person in the world starts off pretty good, innocent even. And then as they make mistakes, they become soiled and they become dirty and they ultimately become despicable to God. And if God didn't know better, he would even hate them. And that that's what hell is even for to get dirty people out of God's sight forever. And the only, the only solution that I grew up learning was for people to get this do-over of sorts, to get a, a once and for all kind of spiritual bath of sorts by way of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And then once they're clean again, once that sacrifice makes them clean again, they can live the way that they were always supposed to live from the start. You follow the rules of the law and you can keep that purity that Jesus has given you. You can keep the health that Jesus has brought you to. And so you don't drink and you don't have premarital sex and you don't gamble and you don't lie. But I will speak for myself in saying, I was baptized when I was seven years old. And if I was dirty in God's sight before I was seven, like, whoa, baby, we're in trouble now. 
So what did I grow up doing? Well, I learned to just keep going back to Jesus, to keep giving those fresh starts. That's how I understood the gospel. That's how I understood church. I think sometimes this is what a thing like fasting is to me. I give up something so I can be a better rule follower. I give up something that makes me dirty so that I can be more clean. But when we look at Jesus like the one in Mark's gospel, I can't help but thinking that I'm doing, what I'm doing is, is living out a system that's a lot closer to the system of the Pharisees than the, to the one that he, Jesus is actually offering to me. And I think the problem is that I see purity as something that I'm supposed to be holding on to rather than something to pursue. I see purity as something that I'm holding on to instead of something to pursue. And I think health, to me, is about not getting sick. Maybe you live that way literally in your own life. I'm healthy when I don't have an illness. I'm healthy when I'm avoiding sin. I'm pure when I'm doing the right things. But this Jesus, this Jesus is willing to get sick if it helps me get better. This Jesus is leading me to someone, not keeping me away from somewhere else. And I think that's why this Jesus talks so often about the kingdom of God, because he wants us to see that the kingdom of God isn't something we're trying to get back to. It's someplace we're trying to go still. And I have wanted to say some version of these words to you all for a very long time. Some of you that like have had private conversations where you're like, we've already talked about this, I'm checking out. I feel like, respect, that's the right call, Claire. Um, She's not checking out, but we have talked about this. Anyway, I'm increasingly convinced that this is the very heart of what we have so often got wrong in the American church. And that is that we're supposed to be aiming at something. We're not supposed to have had it already. We're not supposed to be trying to go backwards to a point when we used to be healthy. Because Jesus is here for the sick. Jesus is here to heal. And if Jesus really is the Messiah, that means we have to rethink what a Messiah is in his terms. If we're going to convict him, then we have to let what he does actually change what we're expecting from a Messiah. And what if the goal then isn't actually to restore Israel? Like what if the goal of the Messiah isn't to restore Israel? What if the goal of the Messiah is to grow Israel? And what if then, in that same breath, what if the goal for me isn't to restore me to someplace I have been before? What if the goal is to grow me? And what if that's actually your good news? What if that's actually your gospel? That every day, God wants you to get closer to the kingdom of God. He wants you to go deeper in your relationship with him, which is a relationship that he's made intimate through his Son, through his Holy Spirit. He doesn't want you, he doesn't want me to always be seeking do-overs, which is how we think about this all the time. 
I'm not supposed to be chasing do-overs and clean slates and second and third and hundredth chances to follow the law. I'm supposed to be trying to know the heart of the God that that law reflects. And the worst sin of a sermon is to use parenting metaphors. I know that. I try to avoid it. I try not to do it. But in this case, I think it's unavoidable because we simply have to ask ourselves, based on our own experiences, both as children or possibly as people with children, we have to ask ourselves, what do parents actually want from their kids? Do parents want their kids to keep innocence? Or do parents want their kids to grow to maturity? Do I want my own daughters, do I want my own son to look good by following the rules that I have set out for them? Or do I intend for those rules to shape them into people who are hungry for good, who are kind, who are seeking good, who grow into holy maturity? I want with everything in me to have children who become good adults. I think this is what God wants for us, if we're his children. Not to cling backwards to a lost innocence or to some imagined sense of prior purity, but to become pure, to become holy. And I think what we keep seeing in the Jesus story is that God is eternally and overwhelmingly committed to seeing that process through in us. And that that is the good news of God's kingdom, that the kingdom is coming. At the beginning tonight, I asked you about fasting, right, during Lent. Do you want to hear something that's cool that I learned? The word Lenten, oh, you knew I'd do it. Got to talk about English roots, English word, yes. The word Lenten, which we use to refer to the season, to the season has its root in an old high German word. And that word is lingeisen. And do you know what that word means? No. No. <laughs> it means to lengthen. It means to lengthen. It's tied to springtime, the season when the days are getting longer all the time. This means that Lent isn't really a season about doing less. Like Lent is supposed to be a season about gaining more. Fasting isn't supposed to be about having less. It's supposed to be about growing in the habits that will bring you to health. In the very next verses in Mark 2, the Pharisees criticized Jesus' disciples for not fasting. There's this weird parallel. And you know what Jesus says? He says, nobody sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. The Pharisees want to know why Jesus' disciples aren't giving things up. But Jesus says it's because they're not trying to reattach themselves to something old. They're being made for something new. Health isn't something that you lose when you get sick. Health is something sick people discover when they are made well. 
Are you willing to actually hear that in the time? Because that's the big challenge. That's the big thought tonight. Are you ready? Maybe I'm talking to myself, Kenny, am I ready to let go of endlessly trying to please a God who always seems eager to condemn me for not being who I, who I was? Am I willing to let that picture of that God go in order to be embraced instead by a God who loves me and who is for me? Who wants to see me keep growing from this moment into the future so I can grow into the life that he's made for me. What if purity, what if purity is something that's still coming in your life? Something that's ahead of you? And what if that's true not just of you, but what if that's actually true of everything? What if that's true of this city, of this church? What if that's true of this world? It's heading somewhere. Not falling apart. What if the kingdom of God really is drawing near? How radically would our lives change if we embraced that kind of hope? Who are we becoming? How radically would it, would it change this church if that's what we were living and preaching week in and week out? What space does that kind of a vision create for people who are hurting, or even people those people who have hurt others? What kind of space does that create for people who are still afraid to walk into a space like this one because of the shame they might feel? A God who gets into the mess with us in order to heal us is a God of shocking good news. So may we preach that God and sing to that God here tonight, here every night. We'll pray for us, and then we'll have a chance to receive communion and do just that.